But today we are starting a brand new series on the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter. Uh, this is one of two very short letters that Peter, the disciple uh, that was formerly known as Simon, and Jesus changed his name to Peter, uh, the same guy that uh, walked on water but then started to sink, the same guy that said that he'll never betray Jesus and then betrayed Jesus. Um, he's that guy. He's the guy that you know, raced John to the tomb uh, when they were told that maybe Jesus had risen back to life. So, so a man with, with a lot of um, natural kind of humanity, impulsiveness, spontaneity, uh, impetuousness that maybe a lot of us can actually relate to, but also a man that was wholeheartedly, uh, passionately devoted to Jesus and was humble enough to allow Jesus to actually restore him. In fact, Jesus went to great lengths. Uh, when, when he first rose from the dead, he sent uh, Mary and Martha back saying to tell the disciples and Peter, like, like, he, like he, he wanted to make sure that Peter knew that he was being restored. He knew that Peter would have been shattered by his betrayal of Jesus uh, on the night of his arrest and false, uh, sort of uh, like fake case. What do you call it? Where you are being prosecuted. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. So, so, so he, he went to great lengths to restore Peter. At one point, he actually, he actually asked him th on three different uh, moments, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. He, he, he kind of like cemented the calling for Peter after Peter had failed really, really poorly, which gives me a lot of hope and encourages me when I look at my own humanity and some of my own, uh, oh, imperfections is such a nice word. Yeah, my like when I screw up, when I, when I, when I fail miserably, when I, when I wrestle with things that I don't want to wrestle with, it gives me hope that God can restore someone like Peter to the point that he was the most significant character at first in actually establishing the church, the Christian church after Jesus' resurrection and eventual ascension. He's also somebody that, that was willing to quite literally lay his life down. Tradition holds that Peter, uh, when he was about to be crucified, um, asked the executioners to actually do it upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to have the honor of being crucified in the same way as Jesus. You talk about a level of boldness and courage compared to how scared he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was standing around the fire while Jesus was having a sort of mock trial and then and then walking away completely during the, the crucifixion. We t you're looking at a radical transformation. And it's in this context, it's this person that is writing this letter to a group of Christians that have been dispersed. So, so some levels of persecution started to take place in Jerusalem, which is where the church began, and they actually started to move out. Interesting side note, side note. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples that he's going to heaven, the Holy Spirit's gonna come down, that they must go and spread the gospel, the good news to Judea, Samaria, um, and the outermost parts of the earth, but they didn't do that. Then Acts 8 verse 1, so that's Acts 1 verse 8, then by Acts 8 verse 1, we read that God allowed quite a hectic persecution to come over the church, which then forced the Christians out of the nest and forced them out of their comfort zones, and forced them out of you know, our preferred sort of convenience, etc., to where they then actually did go into all different places, taking with them the good news. So it's in this context that, that we start the first letter of Peter where he's writing to Christians that have been dispersed, 
and are facing levels of persecution, not necessarily at the cost of their lives. I think for some of them that would have been the case, but they were experiencing persecution as it relates to um, uh, people of, uh, so, so for people that follow Jesus out of Judaism, there would have been rejection and, and tension with brothers and sisters that were still following Judaism strictly and did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. There would have been um, tension with uh, the Roman law. In that time, the man was in every way the head of the house. So if he didn't follow Jesus and his wife and children wanted to, he could have thrown them out, he could have beaten them, they would have had no legal standing in, in court. That's hectic. And third, they would have experienced some kind of persecution from family. And this still happens. 2,000 years later, there are people all over the world that in many cases would be ostracized, in some cases killed, uh, by family members for choosing to follow Jesus. So, so he's writing to people that are experiencing all kinds of tensions because they are following Jesus, but also, I think, preparing people that would eventually start losing their lives on an increasing scale. Just, just so you know, in case you think that, that that's all old news and doesn't happen anymore, estimates suggest that roughly 360 million people still live in roughly 75 countries around the world under a worse level of oppression than what they would have under that particular Roman law. Thousands of people, the estimates vary, but, but even if we're just looking at a few thousand, like eight or 9,000 people are still estimated to be dying every year because of choosing to follow Jesus. Like, that's hectic. In countries like Eritrea, northern Nigeria, Libya, um, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Afghanistan, North Korea, people are at risk if they are choosing to follow Jesus. Like, like it's not a cheap choice. It's not an easy, convenient choice. We have friends that moved to China a few years ago who, when he's messaging me, won't refer to church on a Sunday. He'll talk about, like, yeah, we're meeting for our coffee club. Or if they're meeting for a small group during the week, he'll use other language. He'll use the word book uh, instead of the Bible because, because they're not free to worship and follow Jesus in their particular context. If you read world news every now and then, you'll read about churches being burnt down in northern Nigeria, people being slaughtered by terrorists because of their faith in Jesus. So I'm saying this does still happen, in some cases significantly, but then there's also a type of persecution which I think is a little bit more focused on what Peter was referring to here and what I think is very relevant to us and to many other Christians around the world, where, where he's talking about the kind of persecution that, that relates to tension on relationships, economic implications, uh, sometimes conflict, but not the kind of conflict that I think we think of. When, when he's referring to persecution and conflict, I don't think he's talking about being a course online where you are going on a rant with people you've never met before, in some cases being motivated by a level of hatred and judgment, and then considering yourself persecuted when you know, you're taken off of social media or, or people fight back. I, I don't think that that's the kind of persecution he's referring to. I think he's referring to the kind of persecution that is a response to love, where you're actually trying to love people, where you're trying to serve people, where you're not apologizing for loving Jesus, for serving Jesus, for believing in Jesus, but, but, but when it comes to conflict and confrontation, it's actually done in a way 
that is bathed in love. Does this make sense? I think that this is important because we do live in a cultural moment where there's so much outrage under the banner of Christianity, some of it political, some of it just, just around ideology. And again, in some cases, the essence of the argument might be correct, but the way that it is communicated, the, the heart with which it is communicated, actually screams of hatred, of disgust, which I just don't think is how Jesus would have been with people. I think, I think people that weren't like Jesus and didn't believe what Jesus believed were drawn to Jesus. So I'm not referring to that kind of persecution. I'm referring to the kind of persecution that loves sacrificially and yet there's hatred in response. I'm referring to the kind of persecution where, where your family might not understand what you believe in. So there's, there are, in some cases, tensions, massive conflict, or maybe worst case scenario, even being ostracized and pushed out of the family. It's, it's these kinds of persecutions and tensions that I think that Peter is speaking to. So what I want to take a look at very quickly at just the first few verses of this small letter is he's addressing of suffering. Everything about this letter is, guys, there's going to be some suffering. There are going to be challenges, and I want you to be prepared for it. So I'm breaking this up into two parts. The first is simply this. I don't want you to be surprised by suffering. I think Peter would say that, hey, guys, if you, if you are familiar, because when Peter was writing this letter, we didn't have the New Testament finished and printed and translated. Stories were being passed on from family to family and generation to generation. And I think he'd be saying, guys, you're not alone. This is actually more normal than you realize. Yes, it might be tough. Yes, it might be hard. Yes, it might be discouraging. But don't give up hope. This is actually happening to believers all over the world. And I think he would say, guys, even look at my life. Like the first idea here is that if we just look at the fact that Peter and other New Testament Christians suffered, we'll realize that this is actually quite normal. Again, if you're suffering for the right reason, not suffering for being a jerk, not suffering for being hateful. But Peter and New Testament Christians suffered. 1 Peter 1 verse 1 actually refers to the fact that this letter is from Peter. Peter is someone that they would know has been imprisoned. He's been beaten. They know that he's actually had, he's experienced persecution because of his faith in Jesus. And I think that he's trying to offer them hope. He's trying to remind them that, that God is worth trusting, worth persevering with. Secondly, I think that he's trying to remind them of what we spoke about last week, that Christians are foreigners. He's saying to them, this is not your home. Yes, you might still be in your community. Yes, you might still be in your family. Yes, you might still be in your people group. But, but, but actually, there's a, there's a deeper, broader identity, which is that you are made for eternity. You belong to a different family. In the second half of verse one, he says, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. So, so you've been dispersed through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia. He's saying, you are foreigners. So don't be surprised if there are some cultural tensions. Don't be surprised. If you've ever lived in another country, I know, I know that, that some of you here have come from another country, you, maybe you've grown up in another country, and so for you there would be some, some deep appreciation for some of the tensions that exist. You're not shocked and surprised by it. Yet I think that Christians in a Western context are often shocked and surprised that there are actually some differences. And I don't know that Christians 
en masse actually handle those differences well. I think those that get most airtime tend to handle it quite poorly. And so then that makes it harder for you at work, at school, in your family, because you seem to represent some of these people that don't seem to be very loving. But that also doesn't, that shouldn't move us to the other extreme where we deny what we believe, where we deny that we have a Lord, a Savior, that we deny that we are citizens of heaven, that we, again, don't use that language, but, but, but what I'm saying is, you, I think the other extreme is to apologize for the fact that you believe what you believe. I don't think that we should be apologizing for that, but I think that any difference that we are addressing, if appropriate, if relevant, it needs to be bathed in love. I think a third reason that Peter would say not to be surprised by suffering is because Christians have an enemy. And a lot of the time, it's not the person you think it is. A lot of the time, it's not, that other, it's not the person on the other side of that blog or the other side of the comment section. It's not the person on the other side of the office. It's not, the, it's not actually the person on the other side of the classroom. It's not actually the person at home that's making your life tough, although they may be the small E enemy. But actually, there's a big E enemy. There's a real enemy. In chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Stay alert. In other words, don't, go to, like, like, don't, don't be dopey, drowsy, distracted. No, no. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I realize that that might scare some of us. I want to encourage you that if you're following Jesus... There's an enormous amount of reason for peace and confidence. But that doesn't mean that we should be slack. He's saying, no, no, don't be slack. You still have an enemy. Man, I was reading an article earlier this week. First of all, let me just tell you, anytime I think about Ukraine and invasion, I'm like, I cannot get my head around how this is still happening in 2023. Side note. But I'm reading a story about two brothers. They went to war as 18 and 20-year-olds, <clears throat> volunteers for the Ukrainian army, and how they were fighting, I think it was in this area of, of Bakhmut, I think, which they're trying to still uh, kind of push back against, and how <clears throat> the fight had been relentless for 200 hours. Just so you know, a week has 168 hours. In other words, you're not sleeping for eight days. I want you to think about this for a moment. You're not checking social media for eight days. You're not getting to cook and have a picnic for eight days. A war is raging. So, so we don't know the number of casualties on the Ukrainian front. On the Russian front, it would appear just in this one village or city alone, it's about 20,000 casualties. You are fighting for your life. They're staying alert. These two brothers, the story effectively was how the one had saved the other, one, the other brother's life. He'd been hit hard. He had to cut like a little tracheotomy, and, and he called the ambulance. The ambulance was attacked on the way there. They were all killed, and then managed to get someone else there and managed to get his brother off. And, he was, and, and they, they wanted to take the older brother that had saved him with, and he, he wouldn't leave because there's a battle raging. And about seven days later, he was killed in this, in this battle. So the article on BBC is that this is this brother saying, like my brother saved me, but then at the cost of his life. My point, though, is that when you're in a battle, 
You're staying alert. You're staying alert. And I think Peter would say, God's on your side. It is all going to be okay in the end. He really is trustworthy. But stay alert. Don't let your guard down. Not G-O-D, G-U-A-R-D. Don't let your guard down. And I want to remind you that this real enemy, and let me just quickly clarify that the devil himself is one person. He's not like God. He can't be everywhere all at the same time, know everything, and be all powerful. He's not. He's a created being. He's in one place at one time. So if it's actually the devil himself that gave you a flat tire, you're pretty important. But, but there are many, many, many spiritual beings that are on his side, that, that are part of your real enemy. And what I want to remind you of is that his goal is not just to make you gross, dirty, perverted, corrupt. He doesn't care whether you gross, dirty, perverted, corrupt or not, or if you're just busy and distracted. Either way, he just wants to separate you from God and his purposes. So yes, yes, he may get more victory if he's making you, you know, gross, ugly, hateful, because then you can hurt more people, sure, so, so he might achieve more that way, but his real, on a personal level, his real goal is just to cause you to be distracted from God, who he is, his nature, his faithfulness, his goodness, his truth, and from his purposes. If he can keep you just living a completely self-consumed life, he's like, okay, well, at least you're not you know, able to have any positive effect. So let's not think too superficially. Let's not just think that, that he just wants to make you gross and dirty. No, we're thinking way too superficially. We have a real enemy. And I've got to tell you, there's little like suffering to distract us. There's little like suffering to cause us to look inward and to be self-obsessed. Which is why, almost like as a spiritual discipline, when you're going through a tough time, you almost deliberately want to force your posture outwards. You actually, want to, you actually want to force yourself to look up and out and, God, where can I be a blessing? Where can I be kind? In the, in the smallest way, God, who can I say a single positive thing to? I'm, I'm going to fight the gravitational pull of getting my chin down into my chest. But when we're suffering, when we're struggling, man, that, that pull is like, it's like hard, you know? So don't be surprised by suffering. You have a real enemy. The second half is that I want to encourage that you can be secure in spite of suffering. Don't be surprised by it. You can also be secure in it. But I've got to tell you that you're not going to be secure just because I tell you to be secure or because someone reads a passage of Scripture or because we, we repeat the lines of a song long enough until some of us actually start letting it sink in. I mean, it might. That might that might play a role, but we're going to be secure as we allow our relationship with God to be deepened, strengthened, not just academically, but personally, experientially. Again, as I slow down, so he wants to make me busy and distracted, for me to actually slow down and be alone with God and allow that security and identity in him to sink in, where prayer and reading Bible isn't just work, it's not just more production, more proving of myself, but it's actually relational, it's intimate, it's, it's life-giving. 
We need that. We need to be strengthening our slowed down, intimate relationship with God and reflecting on his word. Three ideas here. Paul encourages and reminds us about God's grace and peace, which is really a key part of salvation. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2, he goes on and says, God, I know, we've only gotten through one verse, don't worry, the rest is gonna be quick. Hang in there, okay? He says, God the Father, notice the Trinity here. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. He's like, we have a gracious, compassionate Father who chose you before you chose him, loved you before you loved him. Jesus died for you while you and I were still sinners, is what it says in Romans 5. And his spirit has made you holy. More accurately would be, say, would be to say he's making us holy. He is, in theological terms, sanctifying us. He's maturing us. He is developing us. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We see the Father, we see the Spirit, we see the Son. Now, I know that this is a very strange term and concept in the 21st century. And I'm, and I'm grateful that Tammy made reference to it a little bit earlier. Because it really is significant that Jesus' blood was shed. Tammy made reference to the story in, uh, in Exodus, where, where as a sign of faith, they had to allow a lamb to be sacrificed. And it's not fair. That's the point. That was a precursor to Jesus being sacrificed. The Bible actually calls him the Lamb of God. It's not fair. He shouldn't have died. He shouldn't have had to bleed. He shouldn't have been tortured. But because of his love for us, he allowed his blood to be shed. All throughout the Old Testament, we see how sin demands payment. And so animals would be sacrificed. Yes, that's unfair. No, that wouldn't stand today in the Western world. But how much more offensive would it be that the Son of God would allow himself to be falsely accused, tortured, brutally tortured, actually, and brutally murdered? And it is because of that sacrifice. In other words, what that's referring to, the blood. So when we talk about the blood, and again, I'm, even, even as a young person, I remember thinking, oh, it's a weird statement. When people like talk about plead the blood, I'm like, that's like, because I prefer to think literally, not, you know, like metaphorically and symbolically. But there is a literal connection to the fact that Jesus' blood was shed. So no, we're not sprinkling you with blood anymore. That's not what it's referring to. That'd be very weird, Okay. But the fact that Jesus shed his blood for us means that he paid the debt that we owed. All sin demands payment. Think about this in a social context. If someone steals from you, someone pays. Justice is where we want the person that stole to pay. Very rarely is justice sufficiently served, and so you pay. You pay through stress, Grief, maybe anxiety, maybe it's financial, maybe it causes tension at home, and so, and so there's a cost implication. Somebody always pays, even if you say, ah, oh, it's fine, like, like, don't worry about it. Like, let's say, you, let's say you've stolen money from a large organization, ah, oh, they won't even notice it. But still, it's, the money's taken, and someone has to pay, whether it's the organization, or whether it's the person that stole it, but all sin demands payment. Jesus paid the price that our sin demanded. And amongst the various statements that he made from the cross, one of them was, it is finished. 
which in the original language actually makes reference to an accounting term to where it referred to all debt is paid, paid in full. A debt was owed, Jesus paid the debt. That's what the Bible refers to when it talks about the blood of Jesus. And so it's this weird imagery. Again, try not to think too literally. But when it says we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, it's not a physical thing, but spiritually because he took the price of my sin, he took the full wrath of the Father for that time. Remember, one of the other statements from the cross is, why have you forsaken me? The only time ever in Jesus' life, because he's there from before eternity, which we can't get our heads around, he's never ever been separated from the Father. We would think it was the physical pain. Uh-uh. It was the separation. There was this moment where, where he had this tsunami of wrath that was coming down on him because he was taking on the sin of the world. He was paying the price. And for that time, he was separated from the Father so that you and I don't have to be separated from the Father. So when Peter is saying, you are cleansed by blood, he's not saying, like, hey, guys, get excited, feel warm and fuzzy. Jesus, you know, because of his blood. You no, no, no. He's saying, this is massive. This is life-changing. He's saying, if you get this, if you understand the significance of this, your whole life has been saved, rescued, redeemed, and invited to become increasingly healed and whole because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Because of that, we can have grace and peace with the Father. It is a game changer. It's not just some like, eh, okay, that's nice. Thank you, Jesus. I don't mean this with, with any edge, I promise you. I promise you, because, because I look at myself often and think the same thing. But sometimes, occasionally I'll be in the back of our church when we're worshiping. And I can't help but think, man, if people only knew how good God was, the price Jesus paid, there'd be a lot less I know that that comes across facetiously. I promise you, I don't, I don't mean it like that. I'm, I'm, I've got to check my heart. Because worship is not about singing, it's about seeing. When I see who Jesus is, and I'm not asking, I'm, my goal is not for you to all go ballistic. I'm just saying that there are times. Like, like when we're singing about the name of Jesus, which again, it's not about the name Jesus. There are millions of people in the world whose name is Jesus. They're pronounced Jesus. It's not about the, again, it's not the technical J-E-S-U-S. It's, it's, it's who he represents. When we're singing about that and when we're talking about how, breaking chains, I don't know about you, I'm thinking of people where I'm like, God, please, would you break the chains in their lives? Only you can do it. Would you show them your kindness? Would you show them your grace? Would you remove the cloud of deception that they can see how kind and loving and good you are? When we are thinking about people or we are seeing Jesus, I'm just telling you, it's hard to just be like, I don't do flick flags, in case you've noticed, okay? So between Sue and I, she's going to be a little bit more expressive. But I'm telling you, when you can see when I'm like, God, please, or God, thank you. I'm just saying that when we see this, when we, when we even begin to appreciate how good he is, how kind he is, that it cost Jesus everything. It's made freely available. But don't you dare think it was cheap. 
And I think that Peter would be saying throughout this book, as you'll see next week, don't treat it as cheap. Don't treat it as cheap. Don't spit on this. Don't, don't think that this is like just like trivial, that like someone gave you a little tip and you're like, hey, thanks. This is, this is your life. This is eternity. It changes everything, and I'll move on. So he says, may God give you more and more grace and peace. More and more grace and peace. Our prayer for you is that you would experience more and more of his grace and peace in your life. Grace is not just like good luck. No, no, grace is the, it's at the core character of who God is. May you experience the core character of God, the kindness, the goodness. Grace means you don't get the bad that you deserve. You get more than you deserve. May you experience more and more grace. Peace is not just the absence of tension and conflict. No, no. Peace is referring to a, to a deep, cleansing, forgiven peace with God. It is a relationship with God which is the foundation of everything else, and then we can deal with secondary things like relationships with people because we have peace with God. When we remember that we have peace with God, we feel invited. We will discern an invitation to try and be at peace with other people. Other people might not agree and might not want to. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. Do everything that you can to live at peace with all people. But But you'll want to. That's why I don't understand. Sorry. I know it's my pet peeve. I get freaked out at Christians. Sorry. I don't know that they're Christians. People who call themselves Christians. That spew hatred. I'm I'm telling you, I think it disturbs God big time. That is is my assumption. I think think it cheeses him off. When, When people who are claiming to represent him can treat people with so little dignity can find glee in, in being able to cut them down and undermine. I'm like, I just don't understand. How is that the heart of God? You are, you are telling people that you're reflecting God's heart. How? How have you experienced the humbling, sobering, freeing, releasing love of Jesus and, and you're comfortable to spew hatred, to be demeaning, to be condescending? This isn't about ideas, friends, or ideology. This is about people. You can disagree on stuff, but can you listen? Like, do you give a crap about somebody else and the fact that they're a human being created in the image of God who God actually loves, and maybe, just maybe, he's trying to get their heart before whatever part of behavior or whatever part of thinking you'd like to see them change? I was much calmer in the first service. Just warning you, maybe come to the first service next week. You know what, I'm sure, I'm sure that you've all had times where you hear of or you've watched some, you know, some depiction of racism and it, and, it, and it should stir up a, like a tormenting burden in you. And it should. If it doesn't, again, I'm like, how are you even saved? But I have a similar sense when I see people under the name of Jesus demeaning others. How are you experiencing grace and peace 
and giving so little to other people. This is so not what the message was meant to emphasize. So, let me move on. I am drawing to a close. Ish. Great mercy leads to great expectation. When we have experienced great mercy, it increases our expectation of who God is, of the end, that we're not in the end yet, that we're not home yet. Verse three says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. He's like, you're not there yet. Stop trying to make this home. Stop trying to make this perfect. Stop trying to make this heaven. You're not there yet. But we do have a great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. Priceless. You cannot put a price tag onto it. It is literally worth your life. Literally. And almost every single one of Jesus' early disciples had to lay their lives down. It was worth it to them. And I would argue, though, by the way, because I think sometimes we make dying for a cause more heroic than living for a cause. In my opinion, and obviously this is a bit more nuanced than what I'm making it out to be, I think it's, I think it's easier for me to be heroic in a moment than what it is for me to be heroic over a lifetime to persevere in the monotony, in the tedious, in the unemotional, in the unexciting, in the unappreciated, to keep living for a cause, to keep living for Jesus, to keep living for your family. I remember, I, th I think it was a God thing, years ago. I've, I felt like God made me see how tempting it was for me as a pastor to help people and to see how doing, doing something for an hour for someone could cause them to think so highly of me and appreciate me and I could feel great about myself. Whereas I can be serving my family every day and no one gives a rip. And I had to recognize my priorities and what I'm called to. I think that it is heroic to live for decades according to God's will, according to a value system, even though there is little hurrah and little, no, no, we are living with a great expectation for a priceless inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Just to be clear, he's not saying that you're gonna be saved one day, I think he's referring to being the conclusion of your salvation. So there is salvation in, in terms of a moment. For some of you, that might be today, where you're saying, I'm choosing today to surrender my life to Jesus, to accept his free forgiveness of sins. I can't add a single thing to it. Nothing, nothing I can add to what Jesus did to the cross. It is free, but I'm gonna accept that, and I'm gonna choose to follow him. And so you are saved in a moment. Spiritually speaking, the Bible says that you're made new. You're, you're, you become born again spiritually. Some of you know there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we have to deal with, but spiritually, you are set free. The enemy's lost all, like all and any power over you. You're a child of God. But then, the word salvation is also, it's the same Greek word used in the New Testament for things like healed, delivered, set free. So, so you're saved in a moment, but then you're also being saved in the sense that you are becoming increasingly healed, increasingly whole. 
And one day, when we move on from this life, that salvation is concluded. Very quickly, the last two ideas. Trials are meant to mature us. Trials are meant to mature us. Verse 6 and 7 says, Be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Do you know how many people in our world would love the opportunity to get a great education. Whether that's in a primary and high school context and then having access to, to kind of like a globally recognized university. There are a lot of people that would love that. They would be willing to suffer for it. If they could get a bursary where all costs are covered because maybe they don't have the finances but, but they have the opportunity to go and learn. And by learning it means you suffer, you struggle, you have to, it, it, if it's a, it'll be a rigorous academic degree or postgrad degree or PhD, whatever the case is, if you, if you manage to graduate with some kind of education from, an, from, a, from a globally recognized university, you are going to count that a joy because you know that it's taught you, you've learned, it's, you, you have figured stuff out, you have grown and matured in your understanding. That is the same language being used for, for counting it a joy when you face a trial, when you suffer. Hey, hey, I think Peter would say, and James said the same thing in chapter one. Paul said it in Romans chapter five. Consider it pure joy. Consider it an education. Consider it the opportunity of a lifetime when you are facing a challenge, when you're facing a trial, when you're being misunderstood, when you're being persecuted, when, you are, when you're having to work through that conflict with that person and everything in you just wants it to be relieved, but it's, it's, it's an opportunity for an education. It's an opportunity for maturing. It's an opportunity for growth. And lastly, I wanna end with this idea that we are participants, not spectators. Truth be told, I think a lot of westernized Christians are more spectators than participants. But that's not what we're called to. That's not what Jesus died for ultimately. He died for us to be participants. Verse 10 to 12 says, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. You've got, you got prophets, you've got, you got, you got books of the Old Testament where, where, where the prophecies of certain prophets were recorded. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them, by the way. That, that didn't know when, how, what. Verse 12, they were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here's the verse I wanna end with. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching this, these things happen. Whereas the message paraphrase puts it, do you realize how fortunate you are? Angels would have given anything to be in on this. That phrase, angels are eagerly watching, like in the Greek translation, 
is described this way by pastor, preacher, author, scholar, Bible translator, Eugene Peterson. He says the Greek word used here literally means to look, to lean over and to look. This little detail is part of a beautiful scene that pictures heaven as a kind of circular balcony stretched out over the earth. Behind the balustrades, the angels are lined up, leaning over, trying to get a good look at what's going on. Salvation is what is going on below, he says. An epic drama that spans human history, culminating in personal encounters with God in each and every generation. It provides the same kind of spectator pleasure for the angels that maybe watching a Broadway play would do for others. The elaborate intricacy of the history of salvation provides a never-ending plot at an endlessly unfolding drama with rousing crescendos and standing ovations. Is it possible that there are times in your life and times throughout history, Christian history, where there have been standing ovations and celebrations and crescendos by heaven's armies? It is the passion of the angels, he goes on, to lean over the balcony rails of heaven and watch the drama. And then this is the line that got me. But you and I are not spectators in the audience. We're actors on the stage. What Peter is addressing is not trivial. It's not superficial. It's not just entertaining. He's like, hey guys, this is not home. Your present sufferings are worth enduring. Don't be surprised by them. We can be secure in them. And we can keep trusting God for more and more grace and peace. More and more grace and peace. More and more grace and peace. And as we allow that grace and peace to be real for us, we'll become conduits of grace and peace to a watching world. Because make no mistake, the world is watching. And it really does matter for eternity. And that's why our heart towards others, how we handle injustice, unfairness, mistreatment, all these things matter. And I think we have balconies of angels leaning over, watching how we're handling this. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says the same thing. We are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith. Can I invite you to stand with me, please? And if you're willing to do this, I'd love for you just to close your eyes for a few moments. And as your eyes are closed, if this would be helpful for you, I'd encourage you just to open your hands. Just as a posture of humility, of surrender, of openness. And for those of you that are in a relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you just to ask, ask him. Is there anything out of the many things that Jason has gone on about today? Is there anything? Is there anything from your word that you're wanting to lift to the surface? Maybe it's trying to push through a victim mentality and, and being surprised at suffering. And I don't say that lightly because there are many people that have been victimized and hurt and mistreated. But is it possible that God's saying, I want you to push back against the gravitational pull to lift to lift your your eyes to lift your chin to to look to others to see people that I died for to see people that I love to see people that are going to go into eternity and 
They really do matter. Or maybe it's an invitation to grace and peace. Where maybe you simply need to ask God to help you see. God, help me to see who you are. Help me to see how kind you are. Help me to see how good you are. God, I've heard about it. I've read about it. But God, I want to experience this. I think God loves that kind of prayer. I don't think he's offended by that in the least. Or maybe there's a particular journey that God has called you to. You know it's God. But there's tension involved. There's opposition involved. There's a price involved. And so it tempts you to wonder if you missed it. Did you get this wrong? Like, is it meant to be this hard? But maybe in a unique way, God's Spirit is simply wanting to encourage you to persevere. The angels are watching. It's worth persevering. Trust me, I'm with you, I've got you. We're doing this together.